0: get your Bible out. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5 today, starting in verse 21. Looking at the miracles of Jesus. This is a miracle. Within a miracle, we we looked at the woman with the issue of blood. This isn't contained in Mark 5, but around that miracle, Jesus wraps another one. And uh, when Jesus is on the move, there's always miracles taking place. Amen. So get to Mark chapter 5, I'm going to read uh, quite a bit of it, 21, probably right to the end, I would think, let's see how it goes. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, I thank you for the people of God, I thank you for the response in worship this morning, there's an excitement in the body because you're breaking chains and setting captives free and doing amazing things, Lord, and we know Uh, We're on the precipice of seeing a mighty move of God. With the enemy meant for evil, God will turn around for good. With the enemy meant to suppress people, God is going to set people free. Father, we just thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jarius came up on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and she will live. And he went off with him and a large crowd followed him, pressing into him. "'A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years "'and had endured much at the hands of physicians "'and had spent all that she had "'and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. "'After hearing about Jesus, "'she came up in the crowd behind him "'and touched his cloak. "'And she thought, "'If I just touch his garments, I will be well. "'Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, "'and she felt in her body "'that she was healed of her affliction.' Immediately, Jesus perceived in himself that power had proceeded from him and gone forth, turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. The woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That miracle is within the miracle we're going to talk about today as verse 35 continues with Jarius' situation. While he was still speaking, they came up from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But, because, but Jesus, overhearing what was spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and they saw the commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but is asleep. And they began to laugh at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was, Taking the child by the hand, he said, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. And she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. And so a miracle within a miracle here, we're familiar with the woman with the issue of blood. We preached through that one and And there's so much in there. I feel like I can preach through it again and just extract more. You know, the word is like uh, like juice. I mean, you just can keep squeezing it. It never runs dry. Anyone? So here's a miracle. Within a miracle, we're dealing with Jairus here. Jesus is in miracle mode. He's in his three-year ministry. You realize Jesus lived for 33 years but only ministered for three. In three years, he turned the known world upside down. Why? Because everywhere he went, miracles took place. And here's a miracle within a miracle here. He, he's got a dying child. He's on his way to minister to her. Yet the woman uh, comes to him. Aren't you glad that Jesus is never too busy to do a miracle in your life? Amen. You know, it's <laughs> Jesus could have been, you know, to, you know well, Jarius is first. You know, it's like the deli counter. You take a number and they call your number. Well, no, he didn't wait. He didn't make the woman wait. She had waited 12 years. He does that miracle. But think about this. En route to the girl's house, she dies. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but healing the sick seems easier than raising the dead. In fact, if you got sick things in your life, don't let them die because it is easier to heal the sick than raise the dead. And so on his way, the girl dies. The woman with the issue of blood is healed, but let's take a look at this miracle that's taking place for Jarius. In verse 21, 22, uh, we see that you know Jesus crosses over. There's a large crowd. Why? Because they're, they're seeing the kingdom of God demonstrated in a way they've never seen before. Verse 22 says this, one of the synagogue officials named Jarius came up. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Wow, serious as it gets. Please come lay your hands on her so that she may get well and live. And he went with him. Okay, so he, here's this little uh, synopsis taking place here. And We see Jarius comes, and he's not just an ordinary guy. Now, God is no respecter of persons, but God knows when he touches certain people, there's a ripple effect because of how they're linked into the community, who, they're, who they are. And he knows, and the kingdom of God is well aware of who Jarius is. In fact, all the people know who he is. So he's not just an ordinary guy. He's a prominent man. When Jesus does a miracle for this prominent guy, everybody's going to know about it, and it's going to have a ripple effect the community there. He's a ruler of the synagogue. So he's leadership, and the people knew who he was. Now, it's easy for us to just get caught up in the emotion of, we got a sick daughter here, and this is serious, and you know Jesus is going to do a miracle. Let's see how it goes. It's easy for us to miss the fact that Jairus is taking a huge risk here by approaching Jesus and asking him for help. And you know what? The truth is, Risk is part of our Christian walk. Risk is required for faith. If all we do is play it safe, well, I'm just going to play it safe, or I'm going to cower, or I'm going to bow, or I'm going to live in fear, we've got to take risks for the kingdom of God. Nah, you ain't hearing me this morning. Let me try this side here. We've got to take risks for the kingdom of God. Amen. It takes a risk to share the gospel with your neighbors. It takes a risk to share the gospel with your friends. It it takes a risk to tell someone who's close to you, that's sin. You need to stop it. We we play it too safe. Cowardly. We're the cowardly lion. What's your church? The cowardly lion church. Afraid. Afraid of everything. Afraid. Living in fear. This man took a risk, and it was a risk. He's a prominent man. Yet look how he comes before Jesus. He gets there and he 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 risks Jesus just by asking for his assistance in a spiritual matter. Now this guy was a member of the religious ruling community, and that community were not big fans of Jesus. In fact, they're relationship with Christ ranged from, you know, hostile to mildly antagonistic, all the way up to jealous and murderous. You realize these spiritual leaders, when they couldn't deny what Jesus was doing, couldn't deny the miracles he was doing, they plotted to kill him. There were several occasions they picked up stones to murder him. They were no fans of Jesus. Could you imagine? The Lord of glory come down from heaven, uh, you know, fully God, fully man, walking among men, doing miracles, and religious people want to murder him. Wow. So Jairus is part of that religious ruling class. And he comes to Jesus and he takes a big risk here because the two parties are at odds with each other. The religious power brokers were no fans of Jesus because he was an existential threat to their power, control, and influence over the people. Religion and spirituality and religious leaders who are ungodly, they have one desire. If you listen to what the scripture says about false teachers and false prophets, they just want the affection of the people. Jesus came to bring truth, to bring love, to bring salvation. The religious leaders were threatened by him. And so here's Jarius, one of them. And and what happens here is Jarius literally breaks rank with his own group and goes to Jesus for spiritual help. I mean, like, you got to understand that that group is not going to, they're going to think what he's done is traitorous. It's like being a lifelong Yankee fan and putting a, putting a, a, a Boston hat on. just feel that a little bit. Ooh, it's not right. Or a Mets hat, amen. I don't watch sports anymore. So I don't care what hat you put on anymore. But I'm saying that traitorous idea of, you know, going from one group to the next. It would be like a vocal atheist who constantly denigrates Christianity getting sick and asking a well-known minister to pray for his healing. You know, think about that. Here's the guy. Well, Christianity is this, and Christianity is that. Now he's sick. Now he's got cancer in his body. Now he asks a a, a, a man of God to pray for his healing. It would be like that. Those in that group would think, you know, this, this is betrayal. This is, you know, this is foolishness. And that's just the way. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law would have looked at Jarius' actions here. He has broken rank. He has publicly asked their adversary for spiritual help in a serious matter. He didn't go to any of them. Isn't that telling? You know, people can think they're all that, but, you know, when, when push comes to shove, you know, who, who, who comes to them for help? It's like being a dad. You know, when your kid's sick, that they don't want to see you. They want Who? mom, right? You guys, are, you guys have moms out there? So here's Jarius. He's breaking rank. And I want you to see the way he comes to Jesus is not discreet at all. And he, and he could have been discreet. Remember how Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark, in private? Do you remember that? And he says to him, you know, what must I do? And you must be born again and that whole thing in John 3. Well, Nicodemus came by night. He came secretly. But Jairus didn't do that. He came right out in the open. He wasn't discreet at all. In fact, he was undignified in the way he presents himself to Jesus. And and we're going to look at that extensively here this morning. But he could have done it quietly. But things were too serious for him to take that approach. So he comes to Jesus and look at his actions here. First of all, Jarius falls at Jesus' feet and begs for his intervention. You say, What in the world is going on here? Falling at Jesus' feet becomes an act of worship for Jarius. You don't fall at someone's feet unless you're worshiping them. Amen. Come on, have you ever had anyone fall at your feet? Not too much, right? At home sometimes I'll come in the bedroom and Kim's folding laundry she's on her knees with the basket and I say please get up I'm just a man. Right? We think it's funny. We entertain ourselves. But to fall at someone's feet, I mean that's that's serious. Why? Because it's an act of worship. And you, you got to understand what a risk for this guy here to openly publicly worship Jesus in front of everyone's eyes. It's a risk. He's risking a lot here. And his falling down becomes an act of worship. He also begs the text says. he pleads with Jesus. And, you know, his begging becomes a display of, of faith. Why? Because you don't beg someone to do something for you unless you know they can do it. Amen? You know, If something's wrong with my car and you need the computer diagnostic and stuff, I won't come to Pastor Mike and beg, please, Pastor Mike, fix my car. The two of us, no. No right? But you would beg. I mean, if you had a great mechanic and he's booked, oh, please, can you squeeze me? And why? Because you come to the person you know who can help you. And you don't kneel before someone unless you're willing to worship them. And you don't beg someone unless you know that you know that you know that they can solve your problem. And that's what this was. It was faith here. It's a beautiful act of worship. It's a beautiful act of faith on Jairus' part, and he's breaking rank here with his group, and he's risking everything. Listen to what what he says here. My daughter lies at the point of death. How many parents do we have here? Would that get your attention? My daughter's lying at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, listen, that she may be healed and she will live. Wow that's faith. Not if you can do anything, or can you say a nice prayer, or can you anoint her with oil? No. If you lay your hands on her, she's going to live. Come on, church. That's faith right there. That's kind of faith. And if you think that's easy to have that kind of faith in that kind of emotional situation, you are just kidding yourself. Many of us standing over a child that's dying, we would unravel in every way possible. Yet this guy is willing to, you know, come and to worship and to express faith in such a way that you know he has got Jesus' attention now. Scripture proves over and over again that there are two kinds of people who grab God's attention, people who are humble and people who are desperate. Jarius was both of those things, He was humble, and he was desperate. He came risking his job, his standing in the community, his office as a ruler in the synagogue, his standing with the religious leaders. Everything was at risk here. What do you and I risk for the advancement of the gospel? What do you and I risk? What are we willing to risk? Our our job, our home, our standing in the community? Are all of those things more important than us being salt and light in the earth? I'm kind of asking this morning. What are we willing to risk? What do we risk on a daily basis? Are we cowardly Christians? Are we just playing it safe all the time? Are we hiding our light under a bushel? The humble and the desperate, they grab God's attention. Let's talk about the humble this morning. Jarius humbled himself. There was nothing dignified about what he did. I want you to understand that. It was kind of like when David worshiped before the Lord in front of all the eyes of Israel. David danced himself out of his clothes down to his linen ephod. You say, what was that? That was his underwear. Now, please don't try this during worship. (laughs) But the ephod was a priestly garment. So here's David, he, and, and, and his wife, Michael, or however, Michael, or who, I don't know, yeah, whatever Saul named her, and she's like, oh, how undignified was the king today before the eyes of his servants. What was that? That's religious. That's a religious devil talking. Oh, how undignified. David said, I'll be more base than this. Yeah, You don't like this lady? You see what I take off next, because I'm not dancing for you. I'm not, I'm not dancing to impress you. I'm not, you know, oh, hallelujah. He lost himself in the presence of God. David was desperate for the presence of God. He loved to worship. He was a worshiper. Here he comes, you know, Jarius humbles himself. He's at Jesus' feet here, and, and, and he approaches God, and he does it in the only appropriate way. He approaches God in humility. Humility is the only way to approach God. English Presbyterian clergyman John Flavel said this. He said, they that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Think about that. Them that know God, what? They'll be humble. Why? Because I know there's a God, and he's incredible, and he's awesome, and he's holy, and I'm not him. In fact, compared to him, I'm shabby. So those who know God will be humble. If we're not humble, it shows that we don't know God. And those that know themselves cannot be proud. I'll never forget, I may have told this story before, but when I was a young man, newly married, I worked for Pepsi as a fork truck driver on the night crew. We worked all through the night loading trucks, you know, so people could get their high fructose corn syrup. It was a tough job. It was a hard job, and we were a good crew. And we worked hard. Now, obviously, I had just come out of Bible school. I'm newly married. I'm trying to train my wife and get her under control. And... Is that how it went? No. Oh, so I'm in the warehouse here, and I had, obviously, a calling on my life. So they would always elect me to go talk to the CEO when we had problems in the warehouse. Even the manager, the night manager would send me, send Rick. And I remember walking up into this guy's office, and back it was back in the day, you know, long time ago. We'll be married 29 years this year. And, uh, you know, he's up there in a $2,000 suit with these beautiful shoes made out of some kind of skin I'd never seen before. And, you know, he looks great. He's like, nice watch, all this stuff. Pristine, not a hair out of place. And here I come, out of the warehouse. You know, bottle cap stuck here. <laughs> Pepsi spilled here. My shoes are sticking. <laughs> yeah. And I got to talk to this guy. And immediately in his presence, in the light of his office, I felt shabby. And I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. Son, that's exactly the way it is when people come before me in their own righteousness and not in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, we're shabby without the blood, amen. And the only appropriate way for us to come into the presence of God is to come humbly, humbly. Yeah, what happens to us when we approach God in a way that's inappropriate? You know, that's an interesting word, inappropriate. Huh? It seems like over the last 20 years, we say that word a lot. You know, when I was a kid, if you were bad, they'd say, stop being bad. Now it's like, that's inappropriate. You take a time. Out. Man, we're soft. And... It is inappropriate for us to come in God's presence any other way but in a spirit of humility. But what happens when we do come in a way that's inappropriate? When we question the fairness of God? How many of us have come, God, that's not fair. (laughs) We question the goodness of God. "You're, You're not treating me right. You let that person get away with it who hurt me. We question the justice of God or the timing of God. God, what took so long? Don't you see what happened here? Jesus, what took so long? My daughter's dead now. What happens when we come inappropriately and we're angry with God or we're offended at God? You know, people get offended at God. When Jesus said, unless you uh, drink, uh, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. The multitudes were offended and they all left. And the disciples were standing behind going like, and Jesus is like, guys gonna leave me too? And Peter said, where can we go? Who else has the words of life? But see, the... The multitudes were offended; the disciples stayed. But people get offended at God. They get angry at God. We we've all come before Him stubborn and defiant when He puts His finger on an area in our lives and says, "Repent!" and we say, "Not yet." Man, I've seen so many people with this. "Not yet." Man, you need to you need to come to Jesus. Not yet. You need to come to church. Not yet. Uh, you you need to get right with God. I, I'm not ready. We're not promised tomorrow today is the day of salvation. You're playing Russian roulette with your soul when you won't get right with God. And you say, maybe someday I'm not ready. Not yet. What happens when we approach God in inappropriate ways? Well, sometimes God disciplines us. And when Job came to God, now Job, Job been through more in one day than most of us have been in a lifetime lost all his children, lost all his wealth. He's covered with boils. His wife is telling him, curse God and die. I mean, Job has been through it. Job expresses himself to God in a way that is inappropriate. And listen, in in Job 38, God dresses him down for 41 verses. Listen to what he says, Job came, he was inappropriate, and God disciplines him. He says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Oh, Job, you have accusations for me? Listen to this. Now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Do you you sense that God's being a little bit, you know, God's getting intense with him here? He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or where is the basis sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone where the morning star sang together and all the songs of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? And he goes on and on for 41 verses and dresses Job down, saying, hey, Clay, don't question the potter. And you know, I wish say I wish the Bible had pictures. I wish they had a picture of Job's face, right? Forty-one verses of where were you and who are you and since you know and you're so smart and why don't you tell me? Woo! <laughs> I love it. Sometimes God disciplines us when we come in an inappropriate way. Sometimes for the proud and the sinful and the unrepentant, judgment comes. The Bible says the stiff neck will be destroyed suddenly and without remedy. Sometimes, now we don't like to talk about judgment. I bring up that word and every, I could watch you like shrink back. Woo. Yeah. Let's move on, pastor. But sometimes God brings judgment. In fact, in Acts 12, Uh, Herod decided that he was going to accept praise from men as if he was a god, and God judged him immediately. Listen to Acts 12, 21 through 23. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, not humble, cocky, all dressed up, dressed to the nines, got all his nicest clothes on, puffing himself up. He sat on his throne. Oh, you got yourself a little throne there, buddy? never make yourself a throne. And he gave an oration to them, not a speech, not a sermon, an oration. He was a thespian apparently. And the people kept shouting, listen to this, this is the voice of a God, not a man. This is the voice of a God, not a man. And he's like, yeah, 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 tell me more. Then immediately, verse 23 says, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Woo! I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God, you know, doesn't do that routinely to us when we're out of line. But I got to be honest with you, there's some people I wish he, he would do that to some people that shake their fist before God, some people that, uh, you know, are elected representatives uh, who say God has no place in this chamber. I wish that God, you know, and and it's up to him and it might come, but you know what, God God could do that to any of us. But there's some people you're like, man, you know, you ever just hear some people being so arrogant and defiant to God and you're like, I'm getting away from them. Because it's coming, it's coming. Pray for them because like Jesus said, they know not what they do. But Herod, God said, I'm done with this guy. Bang. He sends the angel. The angel kills him, and he dies, and he's eaten by worms. It's graphic. Sometimes God disciplines us. Uh, sometimes God judges the wicked and the stiff neck. But most of the time, most often, God just pours out his amazing grace on us, when We come inappropriately. Oh, thank God that the times I've come inappropriately, when I've been stiff-necked, when I w- refused to repent, when I said, not now, God, or, or when I just, you know, was angry and, and didn't agree with the way God did things. And God, you're, you're being patient with everybody else, and I'm suffering in the middle of this. God was gracious to me. Thank you for your amazing grace, God, that little nothings like me could come before you with accusations and patiently you tolerate them and pour love out instead of judgment. Let us never forget that God disciplines those he loves and the wicked will receive judgment at some point. He is not someone to be trifled with, he is God. Humility is not an option for us, humility is mandatory. We have to come before God with humility if we expect him to meet us and meet the needs of our lives. There's one instrument that every Christian has to learn how to play. How many of you don't play any instruments at all? The kazoo doesn't count. But every Christian should play this instrument. And here, Leonard Bernstein tells us what it is. Leonard Bernstein is the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic. He was once asked to name the most difficult instrument to play. He's a great conductor. He, he, he scores all of these instruments and he puts them together in a symphony. And, and he says, uh, without hesitation, he replies, second fiddle. I can get plenty of first-seat violinists to take the lead, but it is impossible to find someone who plays second fiddle with enthusiasm. It's a big problem to find someone like that. If we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. You and I will experience spiritual harmony when we embrace humility and, and, and not have to be first and right and get our own way all the time or be at the head of the line or get the lion's share. Come on, if we'll come before God and just serve simply and just serve with a good attitude, if we'll just play second fiddle... But the soul says, I want to stand out. I want to be noticed. I want to be number one. If you're not number one, you're just a loser. Not in the kingdom of God. If you do what you're called to do, regardless of how it fits in to the symphony called the body of Christ, at the end of your life, you win, amen, because you've pleased God, and you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Go ahead. I got nothing else. That's the end of that point. So the humble, God's looking for the humble. God's looking for those who play second fiddle. God's not looking for some peacock to stand behind a pulpit and and be an orator. He's looking for people who will serve others and clean toilets and, and spend time and listen and cry tears. Come on. All right. I guess that's all the humility we're going to get out of you this morning. Let's move on to the desperate because the desperate also catch the attention of God, amen? Humility will get your toe in the door. Desperation will get you over the threshold. Jarius shows desperation. You say how? He, he kneels before him. He does it publicly. He, he humbles himself by being undignified. And then what? He, he, he begs him. He, be, he begs him. Most of us don't know really what it's like to beg someone for something, most of us have never had to beg too much. But this guy, he's willing to beg. Why is he willing to beg? He's dignified. He's well-known. He's connected. He's part of the in-group because he's desperate. That's why he's willing to beg. He comes before him knowing that, you know what, no one else around him can meet his need, and it's a serious situation, and time is ticking. So he's desperate. What does what desperate mean? Desperation or being desperate is the sense of despair that comes from a situation that seems impossible when every attempt to resolve it has failed. Have you ever been like that in life? Man, I'm in an impossible situation, and I've done everything I know to do, and everything I've tried has failed. Remember the miracle that was in the miracle? Remember the woman with the issue of blood? She tried everything, every doctor, every treatment, spent every penny, and it all failed. She was desperate. She had faith. She grabbed the hem of Jesus' garment. This man is also desperate. He knows time is short. There's no time to quibble about theology. Jesus heals people. Jesus displays the power of the kingdom of God everywhere he goes. It's time to get desperate, and Jairus does. Desperation is not always a good thing. Sometimes it can be bad. You know in business when we're dealing with in business or we're dealing with people we shouldn't be desperate in business. Christian your source is not the government. Christian your source is not some rich person that you can get an account from. Christian your source is not the favor of those who are in power. Man, I wish I could get a half of. Amen. Christian your source is God. God Almighty is your provision. Too many of us Too many of us mock God by acting like we need other people or or programs or governments to, you know, give us what we need. Otherwise, we're going to lack. Oh, if the government doesn't send me a check, what am I going to do? Huh. America has forgotten who its source is. The church has forgotten who its source is. You're willing to trade your freedom and your integrity so the government can send you a biscuit. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, there'll be nobody here next week. I don't even care. It's like Tom said this morning. What do we put our trust in? Masks, doctors, vaccines that they rush together? My trust is in Jesus, amen? My trust is in Jesus. I want to tell you something. You might not agree with me, You might think I'm a fool, but I would rather die than live in fear. I would rather die than live in fear. If you want fear, look, I'm not marching into heaven. Oh, I was afraid of everything. I didn't didn't do what you told me to do. I was scared. I think of that guy who buried his one talent. I knew that you were a hard man. I was afraid. Jesus said, give the one talent and give it to the guy that has ten. I guess Jesus is not a socialist. Desperation can be bad. Don't be desperate before men. Don't be desperate in business. Don't be desperate at your job. Be respectful, be thankful, but remember who your source is. Listen, to you young people who are dating single people, don't be desperate in relationships. You know, I see this Christian's desperate. Oh, man, you got, you got a post out there, you know, your profile on match.com or something. I'll take anyone breathing. Anyone who will talk to me. Don't you do that. You're a child of the king. Don't you settle. Don't settle. It's not good to settle. Ask Kim. It's not good to settle. I told her, I said, I told you, you can do better. Don't marry me. But don't be desperate in these situations. Trust God. Man, what I want to see in Full Gospel Center is faith and fearlessness. Amen? Amen. God's our source. He's always provided for us. Hey, I want to tell you something else. You're not my source. Oh, I hope people give. You know, if they don't come to church and they don't give, God has always provided my needs. Amen? He always will. I love you, but I don't need you. I'm a gangster. Watch it. I don't need you. You don't provide for me. We'll find another church where we can control the pastor with, you know. I'll hold the door for you. Don't let it hit you where the Lord split you. You know, we we Christians got to really stop talking about faith and start exercising it. Amen? But desperation can be a bad thing. But when it comes to being desperate for God, that's a good thing. And here's why it's a good thing. Because it most accurately represents our true need of him. Without him, I can do nothing. Without him, I can produce nothing. You think, well, you know, you could, you could preach, with you could speak. I, I have nothing to say without Jesus, amen? Yeah. Nothing to say. I have nothing to, to give you. Yeah. Yeah. All right, easy. <laughs> Pastor Mike and I have fun, whether you like it or not. But it's true. We have nothing to offer. We know that. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you see the goofballs that showed up at Bible college, I mean, and we were the, we were the cream of the crop, so I mean, there was a lot of... <laughs> Desperation before God is a good thing. It accurately represents how much we really need him. You know, I asked myself this question this week about a certain scripture. I'll ask it to you. Do, do we really believe the things that Jesus said some of the things that Jesus said are hard to believe. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. You, you weren't serious about that, were you? If your hand offends you, cut. come on, that was just an allegory, right? Do we really believe the things that Jesus said? Listen to John 15, starting in verse 4. Jesus said, abide in me. That, that's a connection. That's a, a, a oneness, a unity. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. If you have an apple tree and you cut a branch off it and you put the branch next to the apple tree, when the apples come, they'll be known on that branch because it's not connected to the root. Jesus is saying, if you're not connected to me, abiding. Now, abiding suggests a close, uh, intricate relationship of just, you know, we are so connected to him that you can't tell where he stops and we start. You know, which part of the branch is not part of the tree? Which part of the branch? No, it's all connected, amen? So you and I are supposed to be desperate enough to him that we believe what he says and that we are connected to him in such a way that his resurrection power is flowing through us and producing fruit all around us that only comes with desperation good fruit much fruit eternal fruit doesn't come from a casual relationship with god it comes from a desperate relationship with god the casual seeker who's indifferent to the prospect of having a relationship with Christ will let decades slip away and never have one. Well, Jesus seems like he's all right, and you know, that religious stuff is okay for you, but I can take it or leave it. You see, that person will let the years go by and slip into eternity without having a relationship with Jesus Christ. I had a friend that I've been friends with a long time, been praying for his salvation. Been close to him, but you know, because of who I am and, and and who he is, I don't preach to him. Sometimes the best sermon you'll ever preach is by the way you live. And so through the years just living in front of him, he, he has come to the place where at one point he realized the, the presence of God and who I am, and he responded to me, even without me asking him in a strange way. He said You know, I've never had God in my life as a child. I never went to church. Why would I add that to my life now? Interesting. They can feel the presence of God in us. They see our relationship with God, but they feel no need for it to the point where they would want to upset the nice little life that they've constructed for themselves. God help us in the West here with all our pleasures and our comforts and our material excesses where we've surrounded ourselves with this and that, and this gives me pleasure, and this gives me comfort, and these are my hobbies, and this is my entertainment. And it's as if we're just, you know, we're sitting on, you know, a spiritual beanbag chair with a tall, cool drink. And we don't want to upset what we've created. Why would you add Jesus to your life since you've never had him growing up? Because you haven't begun to live yet until you come to Jesus. The Bible says that we're spiritually unregenerated. What is that? We're dead. We're trichotomous being, we're three parts: body, soul and spirit. Our spirits are dormant until we're born again. The person who's never come to Christ, though they've lived 20, 30, 40, 50 years, has not yet begun to live. But God does not reveal himself to the casual seeker as much as He does to the person who's desperate for God. And I ask you this question today: Are we desperate? For God, or are we indifferent towards him? Now, before we act all spiritual, because we're in church today on Sunday, listen, we can sit out there for years and years and be lukewarm and be uninvolved and be unimpressed by the move of God. So at least we think that we, you know, well, obviously we are, you know, we are desperate for God because we're here on Sunday. No, we could be indifferent and just be doing it out of sense of religious duty. Now, I know that's not popular and it's not going to fill the seats here, but there again, the truth is the truth. And you and I need to take a look at our lives because, you know what, even it doesn't matter what your station is in life. It doesn't matter. Even as a pastor, I have the potential to become lukewarm. If, I'm, if I don't watch it because the routine of life will do that. Listen, people will wear you out. Amen? Come on, you know that. Look around. Yeah, you're wearing me out. Right? And when you get worn out as a Christian and you don't cherish the importance of a person's soul and you don't love people because God loves them and you don't care what they're going through because you're going through stuff, I mean, even as a pastor you can become cold. Now, Indifference towards God is a dangerous place to be. Why? Because Jesus can deal with people who are hot for him. Jesus can deal with people who are cold about him. But the lukewarm make him sick. And he said, I'll spew them out of my mouth. So we want to be careful about indifference. Are you as excited about serving God today as you were when you first met Jesus? Are you as involved in the kingdom things as you were when you first tasted of salvation? Are you passionate about souls as much as you were when you first became born again? Wow, God help us. I want to be desperate for Jesus, not indifferent. Henry David Thoreau said, the masses of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Thoreau's rose observation resonates with us, and it stood the test of time because it's absolutely true. He had an incredible insight there. The masses of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What does that mean? We're all just going through the motions and not feeling it anymore. We're doing it out of a sense of duty, but we don't find any real value in it. God, help us. That we lead these lives of quiet desperation. Well, I'm just going through the motions. I'm just getting up on Sunday. I'm just coming to church. I'm just listening to this guy and then I'm going to lunch and I'm just, you know, I'll meet you over there, but just uh, listen. I want to give you a suggestion this morning that in our desperation, we refuse to be quiet. Amen. I am desperate for God to move in my life. I am desperate for God's hand in my life. I am desperate for the move of the Holy Spirit in this house, in this ministry, in our lives. I'm desperate. I'm not complacent. I'm not indifferent about it. I need it more than anything, more than I need comfort, more than I need access. I need the move of God in my life, and so do you. I want to share something with you just... What I've learned about desperation is, boy, you know what? It really moves the hand of God on our behalf. For decades, I've struggled with people that were abusive. You know, believe it or not, in ministry, you get abused. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to, uh, you know, so you can feel sorry for me. I know you won't anyway, but I'm not saying it for that. But I've dealt with abusive people in ministry, in church, and there was one time where I had dealt with a situation literally for decades, and I got up one night. It was 3 in the morning, and I'll never forget this. Lou, I went downstairs, and I made an altar in my living room. Everyone was asleep. No, nothing. Not even the dog wanted to bother with me at 3 in the morning, and I made an altar there. And I wept before God and I cried out to God, and I had such a sense of desperation. Did you ever get so desperate that it actually, you actually scare yourself? I was like, "Man, I'm, am I having a breakdown over here? What, what, what's going on with me?" But, but there was something in my spirit, and I wept and I cried out to God, and I just you know, and I had no intention of getting up off of that carpet until God met me. I didn't care if I had to sit there, the sun come up, the sun come down. There was something in my spirit was, I'm going to get resolution for this now because I'm not dealing with it anymore. And it was amazing that when I got to that point, it was not, it didn't take hours. I didn't have to stay up all night. Pastor Mike, when I got to that point, something broke in the spiritual realm. And I never had to deal with that abusive situation again since. God, on God just drove it out and away, and that doesn't it allow it to affect me anymore? Uh, and I want to I tell you that story to encourage you this. Many times we're thinking, God, what are you waiting for? And God's like, I'm waiting for you to get desperate. Brick. I'm waiting for you to stop making excuses for it. I, I'm waiting for you to stop taking it. I'm waiting for you to you know, come to me and ask me to fix it and stop trying to do it yourself. I'm waiting for you to get desperate. And it was like a switch that cracked off, man. It was like instantly I knew something that changed. Like the woman with the issue, she knew that she'd been healed of her affliction. I want to encourage you today. God is waiting for some of you to get desperate before him, not to be casual, not to be wishy-washy, not to be cowards, to take a risk, to get on your knees before him and say, God, I'm going to pray until. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to make excuses, but I'm going to wait for you to heal my situation. Amen. Amen. The humble, they get the attention of God. The desperate, they get the attention of God. And I want to close with this. Even though we need humility and we need to become desperate, I I want to tell you something, and you might be mad at me, but those two things are not going to get you a miracle. Like, man, that took like 30 minutes. What did you do that for? Well, they are precursors to what really allows miracles to happen, and what really allows miracles to happen is faith. Look, humility and desperation will get you in the door. But faith is what provokes God to do the miraculous. Everyone in Scripture that you see that Jesus does miracles for, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Go, go. Your faith has set you free. Your faith, your faith, your faith. You can come desperate, and you can be humble and still not get a miracle. Why? Because we need to exert a measure of faith. Jairus' faith here to me is epic. The expression of his heart and in the sincerity of it and the intensity of it, it just rocks my world. He says to Jesus, come and lay your hands on her and she, that she may be healed and she will live. I don't smell any doubt in there. She will live. If you lay your hands on her, if I touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. (laughs) It's faith. Ten out of ten times, it's faith. God is waiting for us to humble ourselves. He's asking us to begin desperate, but he's looking for faith. Jarius was either an award-winning actor uh, saying all the right lines with the right passion, or he had some genuine faith. And I know he had genuine faith because Jesus began to move immediately. Mark says over over again, immediately, immediately, immediately. Jesus moved immediately to go to minister to the daughter. I want to challenge you here today. Do you need a miracle in your life? Do you need one in your relationship with God? Maybe it's grown cold. It's lukewarm. Do you need a miracle in your body? that The doctors say, you got this, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Do you need a miracle in your marriage? you need a miracle for wayward children or to break an addiction or to get free from habitual sin? Whatever miracle you need, humble yourself. Get desperate for God and pour yourself out with him in a way that faith will allow you to connect with the miraculous. Humility, desperation, and faith. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. We are family. And I pray as the word goes forth, as it cuts me and it cuts them, that we would allow it to apply to the areas of our life where we need to make changes. Father, we don't come to church to stay the same. We come to let you change us to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we take a moment in your present to just think, to ask you, what are you requiring from us? Do we need to humble ourselves? Do we need to be desperate and not indifferent? Do we need to muster our faith so that you can deal with our mountains and giants and obstacles? Let's just take a minute in the presence of God. Father, speak to your people today. Deliver us. Humble us. Allow us to become desperate for you. Because it's the only appropriate way to approach you. And then release faith through us so that we can see the miraculous in our lives. I pray that in Jesus' name and the church said. Amen. Give him praise this morning.